Even before the pandemic, technology was spreading across all aspects of our life. Work, school, entertainment, relationships, our lives are more and more run through screens. That trend has accelerated wildly as the coronavirus spread, leading to massive restrictions in physical contact and movement. Many people are now working or going to school at least partly through remote links. Online dating is now truly online. The effects of technology have been a worry for almost as long as technology has been around. Digital technology has simply exacerbated those worries. The obvious power of technology in influencing, if not outright controlling, behavior is well known. Healthcare organizations are beginning to consider technology overuse as a pathology like substance abuse or other addictions. What does that all mean when we are now forced to use digital technology even more? Are you working from home, going to school virtually? How much have your Amazon orders contributed to the 60% increase in spending at the company compared to last year? Whether we want to or not, we are now really living through our screens. How do we make sense of that? I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and this is Life in the Time of Corona. Welcome to episode 13 of this podcast. It's obvious that technology and the internet is playing a huge role in how we are now living our lives. I've long been interested in the role that digital technology plays in health and development. To find out more, I reached out to Dr. Michael Rich, known by many as the Mediatrician, answering parents' questions and honing in on the role of digital media in children's lives. His Ask the Mediatrician blog and podcast are only a small part of his story. Dr. Rich is also an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and an associate professor of social and behavioral sciences at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He's the founder and director of the Center on Media and Child Health and the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders at the Boston Children's Hospital. Before entering medicine, he worked for many years as a filmmaker, so he's an expert on, he's an expert on many aspects of media and digital technology. Dr. Rich, welcome to Life in the Time of Corona. Thank you, Dr. Rosenthal. So I'm asking this of everyone who comes here. What are some of the ways that the pandemic is affecting your own life, whether that's professionally or personally? I managed to escape to the mountains of New Hampshire in mid-March and have actually been seeing my patients virtually since then. One of the things, obviously, is that I get to live in a beautiful natural space um, because it is sparsely populated where I am. I don't have to wear a mask very much, except when I go out to the real world. And um, I have found that it has led to a more contemplative approach. Um, It's allowed me to think and write more. But also I have found that seeing patients virtually, seeing patients through a screen is much more exhausting than seeing them IRL in real life. And I was really considering why that might be. And I think it's really because when you are physically in a space with someone who has a need, who who is suffering in some way, you pick up a vibe. You pick up through through senses other than your visual and audio um, connection. And when you're on screen with them, you need to decode what you're seeing and hearing into some semblance of that vibe that you're not getting through this. So I find that at the end of a session um, with kids who admittedly are dealing with a lot of anxiety and and issues and and real pain, I find myself completely thrashed because I just 
have been working so hard to to really read what is a, a fairly attenuated information when you're only looking at a screen and listening to them. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, my own practice also is almost entirely virtual, and I, I'm experiencing very similar uh, ex- things as as a lot of my colleagues are. We're all talking about how it's, we're just more tired at the end of the day, and it feels that the work we're doing, we have to start using other tools, other cues. So it has been a really interesting experience to see how even our basic communication changes through these screens. Now, now that's certainly been a, a concern or at least somewhat noted even before the pandemic. And certainly young people in particular were using screens and digital technology more and more. And you've been studying and thinking and writing about this for a long time. What do you see as the general effects of digital technology, whether they're good or bad? Well, I think we've got to move out of a binary good or bad mindset around this. Um, you know, the, you know, I think that that follows along a tradition that has been happening um, since, certainly since television rapidly penetrated our lives and lifestyles. And I think that taking that values-based approach it gets us in trouble. Uh, first of all, you put 10 people in a room, they will have 10 different value sets and they will argue as long as you let them and they will walk out of the room with the same value sets. But if you can reframe the issue to one of how are we changed by the screens we use and how we use them and bring real facts, real science to bear on that and then let them choose based on their value set what outcomes they want. I think you're in a much better place. And that was the real reason for founding the Center on Media and Child Health back in 2002, which is actually about to evolve into something called the Digital Wellness Lab, um, where we are seeking not only to work within academia, but to reach out to tech companies, uh, entertainment companies, and actually health insurers who have typically stayed in their own silos and pointed fingers and laid blame um, and say, let's get in the same room, let's roll up our sleeves and let's work the problem. Um, Let's bring all of our talents to bear on something that we are all affected by. But I think that getting back to the original good versus bad question, I think it's both. And And the way we approach this is that Given that now with multitasking, so-called multitasking, adolescents are using screens, actually this is data from before um, COVID-19, using screens for almost 12 hours a day, that we um, we are seeing this more as an environmental health issue. This is like the air they breathe and the water they drink. And so instead of looking at devices and platforms and applications as vectors of harm or of education and good things, let's look at the whole of our experience and let's use what we know about how we are changed to use these screens mindfully. So so it's almost an environmental health issue, uh, which obviously pulls in from from the, the public health aspects of things. So you work a lot with problematic interactive media use, whether it's over gaming or pornography use, gambling online. Is that getting worse now with the pandemic? And, and if that's the case, what, what do we do about it? 
it's too early to tell whether on a population basis it's it's getting worse. Um, we are seeing more referrals at the Clinic for Interactive Media and Internet Disorders, but that may be because their parents are noticing this more. Um, they're seeing it in their kids more because they're with them 24-7 and they are wrestling over bandwidth to get work done, et cetera. I think that one of the interesting things about problematic interactive media use is this has been bounced around as internet addiction disorder or smartphone addiction or binge watching or gaming disorder um, in terms of what the WHO has said. Um, the DSM-5 talks about internet gaming disorder. There are two things that we have issues with given our experience, our clinical experience. One is it's not a true addiction in the sense of having physiologic changes when using, and especially when withdrawing from a substance, for example. And especially with young people, with children and adolescents, the word addiction is so stigmatizing and is so much a, a focus of blame that parents don't bring their kids to care early enough until they've really gone down the rabbit hole and dropped out of school and are staying up all night and not getting up in the morning and you know, even kids who have self-harmed because they've lost access, et cetera. And so we don't use the word addiction because it's both inaccurate and stigmatizing and keeping people from care. We also don't see it as solely gaming. And that's what it seems the WHO and the DSM have focused on is gaming. We're also seeing problems with social media, with pornography and what with what we're calling information or video binging, these endless videos that are being watched, whether it's long form or short form. The other thing we're not seeing is we're not seeing this as a standalone diagnosis, but rather as a syndrome. What we are seeing with these um, disorders is actually that they are driven by underlying psychological issues that the kids already had and either were subclinical outside of the interactive media space or were undertreated. I, I should say for, for a young person with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder for whom the classroom is chaotic and disorganized because there's the teacher talking and that the other kids talking, what, what's someone else doing, what's happening outside, that element of distractibility and hypervigilance really is actually adaptive in an action video game. And so they go to these games because they are masters in that environment, whereas outside of that environment, they have issues. And so much like sometimes people get into substance use as self-medication, in some ways they are self-soothing in this. Social media, kids who have problems with social anxiety are drawn to social media because it seems like a safer environment to interact with people and to sort of tentatively try out relationships in ways that they can't harm you, at least it perceives that. But they get into that space and they feel like everyone else is happier than they are and then they feel worse. Pornography has its own issues around you know, what people expect from sexual behavior um, kids are coming to pornography very early on, long before puberty in most cases. And we need to take it out of the out of the dark places and talk about it because when they first come to it, it's actually kind of confusing and kind of weird rather than um, titillating. And so um, I think that 
when we really look as a whole at problematic interactive media use, first of all, there is a fair amount of crossover. Those kids who are heavy gamers, when they're not gaming, are often video binging, uh, watching other gamers game. And, and so I think that we need to look beyond the behavior to the underlying driver of that behavior. When we treat the ADHD or the anxiety, those behaviors lessen and sometimes go away completely. Yeah, absolutely. I've certainly found that true in my own practice. And I, I think that the healthcare field is not sure what to do about it. Maybe this is part of developing into a new normal. So the WHO, the World Health Organization, has added gaming addiction, as you said, to their diagnostic manual. And the, the American Psychiatric Association, uh, through their the DSM, that's the Diagnostic and Statistical Man, Manual of Mental Disorders, they're considering adding gaming in the next edition. It's sort of, I think, in the to-be-studied-more section of disorders. Yes. But I agree. It's, it's, it's almost old wine in a new bottle. It's, it's these symptoms that really reflect attention deficit disorder, social anxiety, depression. And I think their, um, their lens is too narrow to be only looking at, at gaming. Um, and, and I think that um, the other thing that that does is it blames the technology rather than looks at the behavior. And so it makes it much easier to say, you know, the game get, did it to me, not I, I, it's what I did with the game that, that matters. Because there are millions of kids who play this game and don't go down the rabbit hole um, where it's actually impairing their function in life. Um, and so I think that we have to take a step back and not point fingers at the technology, but to point fingers at us and what we're doing with it. After all, Pogo taught us years ago, we have met the enemy and he is us. Now that the pandemic is kicking into high gear, we know even even last spring, internet use was up at least 30%. And that's not even considering this fall where so many more kids are in school remotely. What are some of the issues that you're finding with parents and the families? What are they dealing with these days that might be a little bit different? Well, I think that parents, particularly as they face going back to school in a remote learning situation, um, are really feeling the pressure of not just having their children educated, but having childcare. Um, I think that we think about school as just education, but the reality is, in terms of our economy, is that it is childcare for six or more hours a day when parents used to go to the office, um, but are now many working from home, but they could focus entirely on their work. They could you know, make sure that they did what they needed to do. They could have meetings when they wanted to have them. And now they've got a child or children there that they need to take care of. And so what I'm hearing from the school systems that I'm advising, and I'm advising a fair number of them, both in the US and in Canada, is that that's what the parents are most concerned about right now. Um, I think we are also dealing with, um, I, I think the second surge is, as importantly, the mental health issues, you know, as opposed to just reinfections or new infections because of the fall. We've been locked down together for a long, long time. And um, even though the formal lockdowns are easing up in various ways, we're also realizing that this is not a temporary thing, but this may be moving toward a new normal. And so 
Um, I think that, you know, we are seeing increases in anxiety and depression in young people, but we're also seeing increases in, in relational violence um, and, and certainly psychological violence, people just getting sick of each other. So I think that, you know, beyond the issue of screens, we've got an issue of how we as humans are handling this new normal and how we are handling being stuck together. Now, when it comes to actually the new normal, um, I, I think quite honestly that this fall we are doing much, much better than we did in the spring. In the spring, it was utter chaos in terms of trying to educate the kids. And so in some ways, that was a bit of a lost semester, if you will. Although I, I never say it's lost because kids are always learning. And so one of the things that did happen for some kids is that they found activities that allowed them to keep learning in new ways. My own 14-year-old actually worked on a sheep farm during lambing season. And um, while he still doesn't like the smell of the farm, he learned a lot about animal biology and about the rhythms of life and, and a lot of science, quite honestly, as well as having the experience of working for a living, if you will, you know, of, of the fact that people actually just get up in the morning and are productive in various ways. So I think it really is what you make of it. It's, it's how well you can, you know, make lemonade out of lemons or maybe not even see this as lemons, but as a new way of being. And um, I think one of the really positive things that has come out of this is that for kids, the screen was a playground before this. It was a place to game, to do social media, to mess around with your friends. And now it's a workplace. It's a tool. Um, it's a tool for learning, for uh, connecting socially, for communicating and quite frankly, um, after four or six hours of Zoom classes a day, they don't want to play Fortnite anymore. They want to close the device and go outside and ride a bike or shoot hoops or do something physical. And so I think that that's one of the silver linings, perhaps, of this cloud is that kids are not only learning to use these tools instead of as toys, and to also... Um, that they're getting Zoom burnout just as much as we are. And maybe they're learning to put these screens into a more productive and limited place in their lives. So there's more opportunities to use technology, kind of how it may have originally been meant, as, as a tool for work, as a tool for learning, rather than just as I go there to hang out with my friends and play. Although I don't want to diminish that because I think that one of the areas that is perhaps most difficult in this remote learning situation is the social emotional learning that takes place in school. Remember, school is a place where for the first time kids of any age are themselves as individuals, not as a member of a nuclear family, where they are seeking out and finding their identities, finding what their connections are with others, building a society, learning how to behave in that society, and, and finding, frankly, their ecological niche in that society. And, and that is hard to do in a remote situation. Um, and so I don't want to say, you know, going online and hanging out with your friends in a, a chat room or 
gaming or whatever they do is lost time. But it's one that I think they have to quite consciously be aware is building their their social connections, their social networks, if you will. That really raises an interesting point for me. You started out talking about how doing remote healthcare is different because we get a different vibe when we're actually in the room with people. We can articulate that, but I wonder about kids who are now not in groups. They are interacting remotely. What are they missing out on? And maybe the other side of that is, are there opportunities here? So I I wonder if you have any thoughts about social-emotional development through Zoom. Well, I think, first of all, we have to think about what what it's like through Zoom and what it's like through social media. Zoom is synchronous, is real-time. Social media is asynchronous. So um, one of the problems that kids have run into in that asynchronous environment is the sender-receiver issue. Um, which is that they will post something, for example, that they think is kind of funny, but the receiver, the person who might be talked about in something that's funny, sees it as injurious, sees it as harmful to them. And so one of the concerns that we have is how can we help kids use this space so that it is showing that they respect themselves and each other in, in ways that are true to themselves, help them understand they are building a digital footprint, which will be there essentially indefinitely and um, will be potentially in the hands of people who seek to harm them or seek to limit them or compete with them. And so I think that one of the things that we really need to do is help them understand this environment and use it well but use it in ways that are authentic to themselves. And I think this leads to one of the issues that uh, we're seeing where kids get in trouble with social media is that many of them go to social media because they're already somewhat anxious or uh, unsure about relationships with people. And we're all using it personally the same way corporations do. We use social media to market ourselves to the world. We show all the good things in our lives. We show, you know, the, the, the new car our parents got or the great vacation we went on or my hot new boyfriend. Um, and so these kids who come to social media seeking a, a safer, if you will, connection, a, a connection that doesn't demand as much intimacy or potential awkwardness. And it looks like everyone else is happier and more successful than they are. Um, which only adds to their anxiety, only adds to um, their confusion about how to get along. And so they end up competing with each other, sometimes in, in very negative ways. So social media, because it's asynchronous, you know, they're not interacting in real time, that can often lead to this competition or, or misunderstanding or not a misunderstanding leading to hurt feelings. And, and I know that's one of the... Uh, aspects of cyberbullying that seems to really drive cyberbullying. So how can we use Zoom to maybe offset that? I, I know, for example, you know, my daughter is in high school now. She's on Zoom five to seven hours a day, which you know, is a lot. And there's not a lot of interaction among the students. 
now hopefully that will begin to change as the school year goes on, but I'm wondering how we could use Zoom to really further some of those developmental issues. Well, I think, first of all, it will change as school goes on because the kids will have study groups, the kids will have uh, projects, group projects to do together and things of that nature. But I think that if we can actually use Zoom for uh, social reasons, for interacting with each other, you know, a lot of folks use FaceTime on their phones to see each other. And we actually have research that we've done looking at the affective components of how we're communicating with each other. Um, and interestingly, as you might imagine, our affect when we are using or immediately after using social media is fairly negative. Um, but when we do a voice or video call, it, it's more positive. In-person is better still. But I think one of the advantages of synchronous communication through screens is you get to see people's immediate reaction to something you say or show. And that can build empathy. You can see that what you uh, said in a teasing way was taken hurtfully, and you can amend that. You can say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, but it was really funny when you, you slipped on the ice or whatever. And help that person understand that you're not being mean to them per se, but you are just trying to find something funny out of something that may have been seen as uh, all negative. So I think that we really need to move into more synchronous interaction, even though it is ultimately a fairly attenuated or weaker form of communication than being in the room with them. Well, certainly better than not having anything or just relying on the asynchronous. Exactly. So the advice is maybe to use Zoom Zoom more, or not necessarily Zoom, but in any sort of virtual or remote, but to use it more. And I wonder, are there creative ways that we can use these platforms to do more than just keep our kids in a holding pattern, which is, I think, a little bit of where we're at now, that we're trying to do better than that, but maybe really emphasizing the synchronous nature of it. Well, I think I think we've got to get out of that mindset of keeping our kids in a holding pattern. I don't think we're going to go back to the old normal ever for a couple of reasons, one of which is that many businesses are realizing the economic value of people working from home. Um, they were forced into it, but as as you alluded to at the beginning of this, COVID-19 has served as kind of an accelerant of already moving trends. It has you know, made us move in these directions. I don't see us moving back to what we had before. I think that you know, both individuals and their employers are realizing the value of having what would have been commute time being work time, being productivity time. And so I think that, you know, we're really rethinking how we do things. Uh, I'm, you know, I used to be on a plane on a weekly basis to go various places to speak. And, you know, just yesterday, I spoke to the Indian Academy of Pediatrics, over 6,000 pediatricians in, in real time and gave the same presentation I would have given if I were physically there. But I, you know, avoided having to, you know, spend two days getting there, two days coming back and feeling crappy the whole time. 
so there are a lot of potential advantages to this. Absolutely. And I, and in terms of the kids, I think we have to very consciously use it as a way of hanging out with each other. Um, and, and be uh, aware that, you know, this is my play date, if you will, you know, this is my, that time where I'm hanging out with, with my friends and it might be gaming. It might be just talking. It might be, um, I've had kids who do art together, TikTok, um, for all that's been, you know, been said about it in negative ways. These kids dance with each other. These kids do dance competitions. And so it is not the platform or the device that's doing harm or helping us. Um, it's what we do with that platform or device that really matters. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with what you're saying, that we are moving towards a new normal, whatever whatever that means, and that I, I think at least for a long time, we're not going to go back to full face-to-face -face school or work. I think the idea of using this platform consciously is both hopeful because we get to shape that environment within which we work or within which we develop. The other side of that, of course, is it's easy to let the technology lead us. With all of this use of Zoom and more technology to do things like school, everyone's under a lot more pressure. As you said, parents, the biggest pressure for them in many ways is what to do with their kids so that they're safe while they're trying to work. There's lots of other pressures on parents doing this work remotely, as we've talked about before, is just more tiring. Are there things that parents should look for in their kids to consider maybe there's something to worry about or how to start shaping their use of technology a little bit better? Well, a couple of things. One is that I think we've got to be more conscious of when and how we introduce technology to our children. Um, we've gotten into a very bad habit of handing a smartphone to a toddler um, and as a, as a babysitter uh, or, you know, just kind of letting our kids go online because at least they're not having sex and dealing drugs. Um, we feel that they're safe. But I think that we have gotten into a bad habit of kind of checking out of parroting them in the digital space. They are spending more of their work, their waking hours in the digital space than they are in real life space, if you will. And many, many parents feel like the kids are much better at digital interaction than they are. They know the technology better. And so they don't feel that they can enter in there in a meaningful way. And that added to that is the fact that the kids say, I want my privacy, right? Now, they would never even think of arguing with their parent who would check to see if there were alcohol or drugs or weapons at a party the kid was going to, to make sure that a parent was around, things of that nature. And, and yet they back off when the kid said, I don't want you to you know, get into my phone or my social media account or whatever. And we ignore the fact that, you know, at age 13 or 15, these kids are still a decade or more away from having a fully functioning executive function in their brain, a fully functioning prefrontal cortex. And, and so to a kid, privacy means so mom and dad can't see it, right? 
but they don't think about the millions of people who can see it, that don't know them, that don't love them, that don't care about them at all, um, <clears throat> who are, are out there. And so one of the things that I try to encourage kids to do is observe the grandma rule. <clears throat> and the grandma rule is don't put anything online you don't want grandma to see because she can. And, and that kind of helps put it in perspective a little bit. From the parents' side, you know, I think that what they want to do is introduce these technologies to the kids when the kid needs that tool and when they can handle it responsibly. So just as they wouldn't hand a, a, a power saw to a four-year-old, they shouldn't hand a tablet or uh, a, a smartphone to a four-year-old without participating in them learning how to use it being very explicit about the ways it is to be used and the times it is to be used and also the ways it's not to be used and the times it's not to be used. And also with the child at every stage, determining what the consequences should be if they misuse it and do that before they get it. Because, you know, it's way easier to negotiate when they don't have something that they want and have them suggest things like, well, I should lose my phone for a week or something. Once they have it, all bets are off, right? You can't, you can't retrofit that kind of a consequence. So I think that that's one, one key thing. And use media with your kids. You know, instead of getting angry about the video game they're playing and saying, turn it off and do your homework, sit down next to them play the game with them. They will clean your clock. You don't, you know, they, they will beat you every time. But what you're doing is you're saying, I love you. I respect you. I care about what you're interested in. Teach me, teach me what it's like to play Grand Theft Auto. And after, you know, you finally figure out how to steal a car, then you're talking to your son or daughter and saying, now that I've figured out how to steal a car, where, why do you want to do this? What, 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 is it, what is this that attracts you to rehearsing this over and over and over again? And you're coming from a very different place. You're not wagging a finger at them and saying you're bad, but you're saying, help me understand this. And I want to give you my sort of perspective on this. And, and wouldn't it be better to be you know, building a city or you know, building an organism in a game than stealing cars and shooting cops? So that's that's great advice for parents. I, it just occurred to me, I wonder, do you have any advice for kids? Be patient with your parents. <laughs> you know, uh, the uh, feeling that your parents are clueless and kind of embarrassing preceded the digital age, believe it or not. Um, this is just the, the latest iteration of it. Understand that they are digital immigrants and that they need to be taught. Uh, but that they really do want to support you and they really do want to help you uh, be better. They're not getting in the way of things just to be difficult. They're, they're not understanding fully. So help them understand what you do, why you do it, and, and how you do it. And you might find that there are things you want to do together in this digital space. I also think that that don't make your parents the enemy or the police. They're concerned about you. They want to support your success. They don't want to get in the way of it. But when you make them the police, it ends up with you having to sneak around and do things 
um, without them knowing. And that makes them more concerned. That makes them want to clamp down on you more. So if you want freedom, take responsibility and be open and communicative with your parents as much as you can and let them share in your digital life to the extent that it seems comfortable for you. Are there other things you wanted to, to bring up? Um, the only other thing I'd want to bring up is to offer to your listeners the Family Digital Wellness Guide. We have uh, produced and have available online for free, basically an overview of the arc from infancy to adolescence and young adulthood based on the developmental stages and the developmental tasks at those stages, how screen media interact with those developmental tasks, how kids can benefit from their media use, but also how kids can get into trouble with it, and even has what we call icebreakers, which is how do I talk to my teenager about his gaming? How do I talk to my parents who are babysitting my child by plopping them in front of a television or a tablet? And how do I bring up these conversations that are difficult? In fact, I've had parents tell me they're much more concerned about the internet talk than the sex talk with their kids, because for better or for worse, they may believe they know a lot about sex, but they don't know anything about the internet. And it is in danger of becoming rock and roll, which the kids like that much more because their parents don't understand it and don't like it. Um, we have to bring these behaviors into the realm of parenting, of conversation, of nurturing, so that we can really raise these kids in, admittedly, a digital era, and to raise them to be smart, healthy, and kind to each other. Well, I think good advice for all of us. As we're wrapping up, there are some one thing questions I'd like to ask. Okay. So what is one thing people should take from this discussion? Instead of developing killer apps, we should develop our killer bees. Those are be mindful in our use, be balanced in our use, and be present for each other. And uh, what is one thing you're doing to take care of yourself? Um, getting out into nature. Um, uh, one advantage of being out here uh, in New Hampshire is that I can walk into the woods at any point. I can get back in touch with the rhythms of the earth. And also I can turn all the digital stuff off and reflect and take time to lower my hyperstimulation and really feel myself, get in touch with what's going on inside me and around me with those I love. And how can I really um, get back in a centered place, I guess. It's been very interesting how many people have given that answer to the question, whether it's going out into nature more or just getting outside more. Yeah, yeah. And finally, what, what is one thing that you think the coronavirus experience has changed forever? Oh, that's interesting. It's, what's interesting is narrowing it down to one thing. I am hopeful that one thing that coronavirus experience has changed forever is our understanding that we're in this life together, that we have a responsibility to each other to 
stay healthy, stay safe, and and stay flexible to roll with the punches. I, I talk to my kids about flipping the M and making me into we, um, and to really understanding that, for example, we're wearing this mask not to protect ourselves, but to protect others from us, um, whether or not we are a threat. And so I think that that is what I'm hopeful has has changed. Well, it's certainly nice to think that the pandemic may help to bring about a greater sense of we, a sense of community. And along with that, as we move towards our new normal, it's an interesting question to wonder about how the increasing use of technology may actually contribute to that. So that there's not just risk involved in the use of technology, there are also possible positives, possible new opportunities. So the question may be, can technology become more of a tool or primary, primarily for a force, a force for good? But I think from what you've been saying, it really will take our conscious choice, our deliberate actions about how we use the technology and in how we interact with it throughout our lives. Exactly. Um, it, it's always been a tool. We've just played with it as a toy. This is Life in the Time of Corona. You can subscribe to the show at iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Please let me know what you think about the show and let other people know about it. And find out more at my website, saulrosenthalphd.com, and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Saul Rosenthal. That's D-R, Saul Rosenthal. Dr. Michael Rich is an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and the T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is the founder and director of the Center on Media and Child Health, which produces research and information about the impact of digital technology on children's development and well-being. He also directs the Clinic of Interactive Media and Internet Disorders at the Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Rich also produces the Ask the Mediatrician blog and podcast, which answers questions about digital media and kids. I'll link to the Center on Media and Child Health in the episode notes. It's a trove of great information that I go to quite frequently, actually, and send many of my families to as well. So, Dr. Rich, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for spending the time with me. Listeners, I want to hear from you. I'm collecting brief tales of the pandemic for future episodes. How has your life changed due to the coronavirus? What are you doing to stay safe and thrive? Contact me at inthetimepodcast at gmail.com. That's inthetimepodcast at gmail.com. Share your stories on life in the time of corona. Corona.